be looking at the life of Jacob. So the title is A Journey of Faith, Jacob Becomes Israel. And as we think about the life of Jacob, there's so much that could be spoken about Jacob's life. But before we get into the message this morning, would you pause with me and let us pray together? Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you would make us able hearers. Help us to receive your word, to hear the truth of your word. And by your Holy Spirit, God, we ask that you would speak into our lives. Lord, would you remove our defenses? And God, would you use your word to confront us in areas of sin to encourage us in areas where we were drawing nearer to you and to cause us to walk in the joy that comes from being yoked together with you and being transformed into the image of Christ our Savior. And so, Lord, I pray this morning your anointing upon your word, upon our ears, upon my lips. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Although there's much to be said about Jacob's life, I'm going to try to uh, condense the, the material of Jacob's life down into three scenes for us this morning as we walk through the Genesis narrative for Jacob's life. And I want us to camp out and end on Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, but there's some background that we need to fill in before we get there. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac and Rebekah. He's a younger brother of a twin named Esau. Jacob and his father had twelve Jacob was the father of twelve tribes of Israel, and Jacob was the beneficiary of God's providence and grace through the covenant that God had made with his grandfather, Abraham. He was a beneficiary of providence because God guards every step of Jacob's journey and even uses Jacob's tumultuous past to shape and to transform and to reform Jacob into the man that God desired him to be. And grace, grace because in spite of his tumultuous past, God remained faithful to his covenant promise to Abraham. And by doing so, he bestowed blessing upon blessing on Jacob, the unrighteous, unrepentant deceiver. In one very real sense, we see God as the one who doesn't give up on Jacob. In fact, God tenaciously pursues Jacob so that he might, through Jacob, ultimately fulfill his promise of redemption to the world. So we see in the life of Jacob, one who struggles with man and ultimately one who struggles with God. But I I want you to see this morning this, that God never ceases to work in the lives of his covenant people so that we are transformed and reformed to reflect the image of Christ to the world. So this morning, we'll read a few select passages on our way to Genesis 32, verse 22. And in the first scene, as I mentioned in Genesis 25, in the first scene, we see that that Jacob has a, a life of deception. 
And we see that a life of deception breeds difficult circumstances. Jacob's story is incredible. His journey is long, and his journey to faith gives us a picture of what his life was like before he arrived there. His life was full of deception, manipulation, craftiness, and strategizing. Yet, in spite of all this, the incredible part is that God uses Jacob, even in spite of his flawed character. So the narrative of Jacob's life begins there in verse 19. And if you will, look at verse 21 and follow along as I read. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We learn in the story that even Jacob's name is a picture of what he's doing. And, 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 and as the story develops, it's a picture of his character. Jacob means deceiver, or he grabs at the heel. Or he cheats. All of these are synonymous with one another. But the text highlights for us the differences between Jacob and Esau. One commentator said of Esau, it was Esau's nature to love the outdoors. He liked to hunt. His pursuits made him strong and physically confident. Succeeding episodes throughout Genesis reveal that he remained an unusually hairy man. And that he smelled of the field. One commentator said he was a he was a modern day prototype of a mountain man, a, a, a near eastern Jeremiah Johnson. You might not hear him coming, but you would definitely smell him coming. Another commentator said of Jacob, the text here renders that Jacob was a quiet man. But quiet doesn't mean what we might think it means. It means sound or solid. And the commentator calls it, he says, this is a level-headed quality that made Jacob at his best toughly dependable and at his worst a formidably cool opponent. You see, Jacob was self-contained. He was self-sufficient. He was cool. He was calculating. He was a rascal. Jacob was an opportunist. His mantra was cheat to get ahead. He's seen throughout the story as an ambitious man, a self-seeking and self-serving man, one who's scheming, one who's exploitative. You know, I think Jacob would have fit in well with American society today. He was cunning and crafty. And the tension between Jacob and Esau begins to escalate in Genesis chapter 25, verse 29, where Esau comes in from the field and he's famished. And he asked Jacob for some of his red stew in verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. 
Jacob obliges with one condition. It's as if he had it planned out. Sell me your birthright. Esau says, what good is it to me if I'm about to die? I'll sell you my birthright. And Jacob says, swear to me now. And so he does. The tension continues to escalate between Jacob and Esau throughout the story. And the tension between the two brothers culminates in Genesis chapter 27, when Jacob then covers himself with goatskins to appear hairy like his brother Esau. He clothes himself with Esau's garments so that he smells like Esau. And then he enters into his father's tent to steal the blessing of Esau from his blinding father, Isaac. And as he goes in, he steals the blessing from Isaac. And then Genesis 27, 36 tells us that when Esau goes to his father Isaac later for a blessing, he finds out that he's been swindled out of both his birthright and his blessing. And the response is, Esau says, is is he not rightly named Jacob? For he cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. So Rebekah heard of Esau's plan to murder Jacob. And so in Genesis 28, she and Isaac send Jacob away to Mesopotamia to be among Laban's people, Rebekah's brothers, so that he might find a wife from Laban's daughters. So Jacob left Canaan on the run. And as he journeyed to Mesopotamia in Genesis chapter 28, verse 12, it tells us that he pitched his tent at a, outside of a city or in a city that night called Luz. And it's in that place that God revealed himself to Jacob. That night in a dream, God comes to Jacob. And in verses 13 through 15, we see that God speaks to Jacob and tells him, 28, 13 through 15, Behold, the Lord stood above a ladder and, it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall not be like the dust of the earth, or your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you your offering shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So in verses 13 through 15, as Jacob is leaving the land of Canaan, God repeats to him the covenant promise that he made with Abraham. And he tells Jacob, I'm going to bring you back into the land and fulfill the promise that I made to Abraham, your father. But in Genesis 29, the tables begin to turn in Jacob's life. Jacob finds himself in a difficult place. Jacob's deception and craftiness catches him. He meets Rachel, Laban's younger daughter, and we won't go through the story, but go back and and read the story of what he says to her when he goes up to her and meets her for the first time. And so he agrees to work for Laban for seven years so that he might that he might earn or buy the right to marry Rachel, Laban's younger daughter. And the time finally arrives for Jacob to marry Rachel. But on the night of their betrothal, Laban does something very conniving. He switches the bride. Instead of giving Jacob Rachel, he gives Jacob Leah. 
And Jacob wakes up the next morning only to realize that he's been swindled. It must have been an awkward morning when he woke up. So when he wakes up, realizing that he's with Leah and not with Rachel, he's infuriated. And then he has to work another seven years for Laban to get for Laban to give him Rachel's hand in marriage. Then he ends up working another six years tending the flocks of of Laban. So for 20 years, Jacob works for Laban and is swindled and cheated the whole time. Chapter 30 then details for us God's 20 year growth plan in Jacob's life. Not only is he teaching him about his past, but he's also pouring out his blessings upon Jacob's life. Eleven children, material blessings, and innumerable livestock. And so over a 20-year period, God is doing this amazing work, really, in Jacob's life. God's softening and plowing Jacob's heart, preparing him to return to the land of promise. And I think one of the truths that we see in Jacob's life is that God allows Jacob to be his own man. He allows him to make his own decisions. But Jacob's decisions and actions are not without consequences. You see, Jacob's self-sufficiency has led him to a desperate place where he's now ready to deal with the sins of his past. Here's the thing. God will allow us to remain in our sin. He'll allow us to remain in our pridefulness and our self-sufficiency. He'll allow us to remain in our unrepentance until we grow tired of the dire circumstances that sin breeds in our lives. So in chapter 31, Jacob receives a wake-up call. He overhears Laban's son speaking harshly about him. And Jacob ends up saying, enough. And as he reflects over his 20-year stint with Laban, he calls his wives together And he says to them in chapter 31, verses 6 and 7. He tells them, you know that I've served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. It's at this point that God speaks to Jacob again. In verse 11 of chapter 31, then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said to him, here I am. In verse 13, God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And so Jacob makes a break from Laban. And Jacob's struggle with Laban over these 20 years has pressed him toward trusting in God because in spite of Laban's best efforts to cheat him, God has still blessed Jacob. From the human vantage point, as we look at this portion of Jacob's life, I think what we see is manipulation. We see trickery. We see jealousy all working in tandem. But when we look at the whole of the narrative, we see the providential hand of God working in the midst of every scene of Jacob's life. Go back and begin reading in Genesis 25 and just see how God is providentially working in the life of Jacob. If we recall points along the narrative, along the way, from his birth name, 
Jacob to his swindling the birthright and blessing from Esau to his fleeing Canaan and marrying Leah and Rachel to their jealousy of one another and bringing about 12 tribes of Israel. All of this hardly sounds like a man that's worthy of receiving God's blessing. Why would God use a man like Jacob, a deceiver, one who cheats? The answer to that question is that God has graciously called him. And what we need to see this morning is that our lives really are no different than Jacob's. We're deceivers. We're manipulators. We're self-serving. We're opportunists. The list could go on and on, but God in Christ has providentially and graciously made a way for our sin to be covered so that we might walk in His way. The question isn't, how could God allow all this to go on in Jacob's life over those 20 years? That's the wrong question. The question that we need to ask this morning is, how long will it take Jacob to relinquish his sin of following his own way and surrender to following God's way? And you see, the same question needs to be posed in our lives this morning. Friends, how long will it take for us to relinquish our sin of following our own way and submit and surrender to following God's way? Let me ask you, has life brought you, has has a life of deception and sin brought you to a difficult place? Has it brought you to many difficult places in life? The second scene of the journey is the scene from self-sufficiency to humility. In this journey from self-sufficiency to humility, this is a difficult part of the journey for Jacob. He's embraced God's leading to return to Canaan. So chapter 31 marks his decision to leave and follow God. Chapter 32 begins his journey back to the land of Canaan. He's been avoiding this day for 20 years. But he's arrived at a place where he can no longer trust in himself. He has to trust in God. So initially, the scene takes a positive step. Jacob's encouraged as he he journeys with his family and his herds and his possessions back into the land of Canaan. Just as 20 years earlier, when he fled Canaan, now upon his return, the angels of God meet him. And when Jacob saw the angels, he exclaimed, this is God's camp, and he named it Mahanaim, meaning two camps. And so in Genesis chapter 32, we see that on this excitement, Jacob now sends his messengers to meet his brother so that he can greet his brother as he's coming back into the land. And verse 3 says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. But what I want you to see is in the midst of sending his brothers, uh, his messengers to his brother, I want you to notice the humility in Jacob's life. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers, verse 4, he instructed his servants, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I've sent to tell my Lord. 
in order that I might find favor in your sight. You see the change that's happening in Jacob's life. But in verse six, the messengers are returning. And as they're returning in verse six, the messengers come to Jacob and they say, we came to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Verse 7 tells us that Jacob became greatly afraid. He was distressed. This was difficult for him. Fear gripped his heart. He feared for his life. He feared for the lives of his family. And so Jacob's learning that obedience to God isn't easy. And it requires complete trust and dependence. You see, this is the first time in the Jacob story where Jacob turns to God in prayer Instead of turning to his own strategies, look what happens in verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. You see, he he begins to repeat God's covenant promise to him in verse 9. And in verse 10, he confesses his unworthiness of God's faithfulness to him and God's blessing in his life. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Jacob begins to pray for deliverance from God in verse 11. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. And he reminds God of his promise to do him good in verse 12. In other words, Jacob's saying that God, he's saying to God, God, I'm following you here and I'm entrusting myself completely to you. And I want to go and walk according to your ways. And so I'm entrusting myself to you. Friends, this is this is the gospel of Christ. Jacob knows that he can't deliver himself from Esau, and he knows that he must trust in God for his salvation. And this is the point of the gospel of God's grace through Christ in our lives. He's revealed himself to us through his word as he revealed himself to Jacob through his word. That being in the person and work of Christ, he became flesh And we, like Jacob, the deceiver, must recognize that our greatest need in life is to be forgiven, to be saved from our sinful condition. We can't merit God's salvation. We can't be good enough to earn God's favor. It's only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we can be saved from our sin. And so this is Jacob's confession. Right. Verse 10, I'm not worthy. And this must be our confession. I'm not worthy. The confession then turns to request God, please save me. We see in the New Testament. Where Acts, Peter says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And Paul tells the Philippian jailer when he asks, what must you do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so we too are called to, we are to call upon the Lord Jesus to be saved. You see, obedience to God teaches the believer how to trust God 
in the face of all circumstances, even in the face of potential fearful, harmful circumstances and outcomes, God is calling us to put our trust and our faith in Him. Like Jacob experiences, we walk through hardships, sufferings, fearful times. And all have the humbling effect of causing us to cast our cares upon Christ. Whether it be cancer or job loss or the death of loved ones, hardships, persecution, suffering, all of these have this humbling effect of causing us to cast our cares upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm encouraged by what happens next in the text. Jacob's giftedness of strategizing and planning is then consecrated for his good when he lays out a strategy to bless his brother. You see, what happens here is the gift taker now becomes the gift giver. And in verses 13 through 21, he lays out a plan to inundate Esau with gift after gift. Five droves of herds of of animals are sent ahead of him, numbering 550 animals. You know what Jacob does? He humbles himself. He humbles himself saying, that I may appease him, verse 20, that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. You see, Jacob seeks reconciliation with his brother Esau in true gospel fashion. He returns the blessing that he robbed 20 years prior. If he's going to follow God, he must be reconciled to his brother. This is the message that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, when he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You see, the truth is, if if we're going to be at peace with God, we must be at peace with one another. Friend, what about you? Have you made the journey from self-sufficiency to humility? Have you called out to God for salvation? Have you humbled yourself and sought reconciliation with a brother or with a sister who's offended you? Or whom you've offended? The third scene is one of a transforming encounter. We see it in verses 22 through 32. Jacob brings his family across the ford of the Jabbok. And then he returns back to the other side to be alone. I could only imagine that the weight of his brother's coming has driven him to this place of of solitude. And I think to pray. Verse 24 begins the pivotal encounter between Jacob and God. It says... And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What's your name? And then Jacob said, told him, My name's Jacob. 
Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Verse 32 reads, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel did not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob wrestles with God through the night. Six or seven hours of intense wrestling. Being put in holds. Legs being, uh, being twisted, arms being twisted. Throughout the night, this wrestling match goes on, and he's struggling and struggling and struggling. But here's the thing. The point isn't the physical wrestling match. The match is a parable of Jacob's life. All Jacob's life has been a struggle. All of his life has been a, a grappling and grasping and wrestling with men. First with Esau, his brother, then his father, then his father-in-law, and now with God. Jacob had been bent, but he hadn't yet been broken until early in the morning as dawn approaches. He's wrestled all night long, fighting off this guy. And in verse 25, the man with one superhuman touch puts Jacob's hip out of socket and zaps his strength. And that's when Jacob broke. So Jacob was worn out. He was beaten. After a long match, he clings to the God-man with every ounce of strength that he has. And he won't let him go until he receives a blessing. The prophet Hosea in 12.4 says he strove with the angel and he prevailed and he wept and he sought his favor. This is Jacob wrestling with God in prayer throughout the night and physically wrestling with God. And in verse 30, Jacob tells us the identity. So Jacob called the man, uh, called the name of that place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Verses 27 and 28, there's this exchange of words where the man asks Jacob, what is your name? You see, the character of a man is tied up in his name. And so when Jacob answers this question in submission, he's answering the question of what his character is, what his story is. And he says, my name is Jacob. And then the man says, no longer will your name be called Jacob, but it will be called Israel, meaning he strives with God. Verse 28, I think, is the single most important point of the story. Jacob was transformed when he encountered God. You see, his character was changed and his strength was no longer the source of his power. Now his weakness reveals a new power. He's no longer Jacob as he's just grasped the heel of the one that he had wrestled with. Now his name has been changed to Israel. He strives with God. 
And so Jacob wrestles with God and man, and Jacob prevails with God and man so that his strength is now found in weakness and no longer in his self-sufficiency. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of this weakness being his strength in 2 Corinthians 12.10 when he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the Jacob story points us to the great hope of the gospel. For unlike Jacob... Christ, the offended one, has sought us out and and reconciled us to himself through his death on the cross. And for all who believe upon Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17 assures us by saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, he's a new creation, right? The old has gone, it's passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Jacob has a transforming encounter with the Lord God, and his character is changed. And I want you to see, this wasn't an overnight process for Jacob. Friend, neither is it an overnight process in our lives. This was a 20-year process where God is providentially working in Jacob's life and doing this work of transforming and, and changing him, and it culminates on this night when he quits running from God, quits depending upon himself, and surrenders to God's hand and to God's work in his life. Jacob has a transforming encounter and he comes out a changed man when God encounters him. And I want to ask you this morning, have you had a transforming encounter with the Lord God? Has Jesus Christ transformed your life? Can your life be summed up in what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore the old is gone. Behold, all things are made new. For some, maybe it's been a long journey. Maybe God has been doing this work over a very long period of time in your life. And today is the day that you stop wrestling and you submit to God. Believer, is there a sin in your life that you have just been wrestling with God over? It's time to stop wrestling and to submit and allow the working of the Holy Spirit in your life to, to continue this transforming work. Jacob's journey of faith reminds us of God's providential hand in our lives because we see God's providential hand in Jacob's life. He's always at work in our lives exercising grace toward us, transforming us and reforming us that we might be used by Him. So I want you to see this morning that God never ceases to work in the lives of His covenant people so that we are transformed and we're reformed to reflect the image of Christ to the world. For Jesus Himself said, Therefore, As you go, make disciples of all nations. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen, 
And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Church, God is working in our lives providentially, graciously, desiring to use us to proclaim his word and to be about his work in this city and throughout the nations. Individual this morning, hear me. God has been at work providentially in your life up until this very day, up until this very point this morning. And I pray that if there's something that you've been wrestling with God over and he's trying to change you and transform you, that you would submit, that you would stop wrestling and that you would surrender to God and let God pour out his blessing upon your life. Let us pray. And then I want to invite you to respond to the Lord this morning as he's leading you. Father, I pray that you would take your word and the story of Jacob's life and his journey to faith. And Lord, you would cause it to sink in and to resonate with each of us. Oh God, that we might be a people who surrender to you, to trust in you, who walk obediently following after you, even in the hard times, so that we might experience the renewed strength that comes not from our own strength, but, but that comes from our weakness where we experience your strength in our life. So Lord, I pray that you would, in our weakness this morning, strengthen us to follow you. Lord, that you might be exalted in each of our lives. Thank you, God, that you're working in us and through us. And we pray, God, that you would continue to make us into the vessels that you would have us to be to proclaim and declare your glory in this world. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.